The Honorable, the Judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having any manner or form of business before the Honorable of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit are admonished to draw nigh and give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court.
hoc litigation representations are not binding on the court and do not otherwise outweigh a facially restrictive policy on speech. And that's the case here. Was that a preliminary injunction case? I believe it was, Your Honor. I have to uh, double check that, but that, that's my understanding. Because yeah, uh, I, I guess what Judge Wilkinson's question is getting at is why, why shouldn't we just look at the policy that apparently is, at least on the face of it, has been applied in practice that suggests that there really isn't anything arbitrary or capricious about it, that there's a process for getting approval, uh, which is generally granted, I think, in every case, um, uh, and that there are, essentially is a lottery system, just which is restrained simply by the capacity of the, of the university to accommodate the various groups, but there's no content subject matter restriction. Your Honor, I, I respectfully, I, I do think there is some content uh, subject matter. So, for example, you need prior authorization to distribute literature about informational activities. You don't need that to distribute literature for advertising. Uh, for what? I'm sorry? Advertising. Okay. So, if, for example, if, if you want to hand out leaflets about the upcoming election, about a ballot measure, you need prior written authorization. If you want to advertise about you know, a fraternity rush week event, I still, I, you, you just you, have you, to talk up. You're dealing with I apologize, Your Honor. old ears. <laughs> no, I apologize, Your Honor. Is, is this better, Your Honor? Yes. Uh, or maybe can you pull the microphone closer to you because you're tall? Yeah, sure thing. All right. Um, so, but if you wanted to uh, hand out literature for a Rush Week event, for example, advertising, then you, you don't need approval at all. So... The difference between those two things are the words written on a piece of paper, which um, we would believe would be would make it content-based, Your Honor. And because I'm sorry, of that, I didn't understand your distinction. One is advertising, and one's not. And if you're talking about your beliefs, that's advertising them. I I, I just don't get. Try me again on that, okay? Certainly. So, the policy requires prior written authorization right. to distribute literature. Right. That's informational in nature. Um, say, for example, uh, something about a ballot measure in an upcoming election. But you do not need prior written authorization to distribute literature that is advertising. Uh, if, if, that, if that makes sense, Your Honor. So it's the same, the same handout, but the content is different. And one requires prior written authorization, and the other doesn't. But, but if I may, uh, you know, back to the, uh, the bias-related incidents policy. Um, the court, yeah, the question... Circuit cases, I don't think they did. They, they, they had a, uh, one of these bias committees uh, before them. Um, but my recollection is that the leafleting question that's presented here and the tables and everything... Was that an issue in the Fifth and Sixth Circuit cases? Because it seems to me um, that we're certainly courting a, a circuit conflict if we uphold a, the, the bias committee. But as far as the leafleting question was concerned, was anything comparable presented to those other circuits? Uh, no, Your Honor. The, the speech first cases in Schlissel and the, the Sixth Circuit 
and those with fifth. So the conflict would be with respect to the bias committee. Uh, that's correct, Your Honor. The, the fifth. Is there already a circuit conflict, though? Well, the, the Seventh Circuit uh, took issue with the factual record in that case. If you look at uh, Judge Brennan's um, concurrence in that case, uh, he wanted declarations from the students, and, and that's the record that we provided here. But when you do a one-to-one -one comparison on you know, the facts and the record between Cartwright and the Eleventh Circuit, Schlissel in the, in the sixth, and Fendez in the fifth, uh, all three of those are, are uniform that these types of policies objectively chill speech. And, and they the do holding that. Holding in the, in the Seventh Circuit was? Uh, they, they found that uh, a lack of standing right. because there was not uh, a strong enough factual record to show that speech was being objectively chilled. And I think and, that's the argument here, is it not? Yeah, to a large extent, yes, so Your Honor. There is a split in the circuits already about the argument that is at issue here. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's probably right. Okay. My understanding was that in the uh, that the Seventh Circuit held no standing, and that the Fifth and Sixth Circuits held um, that there that there was standing. And as I understand it. Um, the argument for standing that you're making is that um, these are students at the university. Um, they are subject to the policy. Um, and that when we look at injury in fact, the Seventh Circuit said, well, there need to be particularized definitions. But as I understand the Fifth and Sixth Circuits, they were saying, um, no, that that uh, in this case law to support it, that self-censorship on these volatile topics um, is in fact due to the policies and that that qualifies as an injury in fact. The, the self-censorship is an injury in fact. Is that your argument? Yes, Your Honor. That because the policies, if you take a look at comprehensively what they do, the anonymous reports, they summon students for meetings on a team that has... You don't necessarily need to wait for the, for the uh, authorities to say, well, this, uh, what you've just said is out of bounds and the rest. It's a, it's a question of the reaction to these, to these sorts of policies and being called into, on, the, on the rug by the dean's office and everything is enough to create the policies themselves create self-censorship under the First Amendment. And, and that was the argument that persuaded uh, at least a number of other, several other circuits, uh, the fact that there was indeed standing here. That's, that's correct, Your Honor. That's our position as well. Uh, and you know, this court in, in Cooksey held that in a pre-enforcement facial challenge, you don't need to wait and, uh, and risk punishment um, in order to be able to challenge a policy that facially applies to speech and has an objectively chilling effect. Can I ask and, you, um, excuse me, about one of our more recent precedents, Abbott, and um, isn't there language there that a threatened administrative inquiry cannot, does not constitute a First Amendment injury? 
Doesn't that seem to fit exactly this case? So we believe uh, Abbott is distinguishable, Your Honor. I, I know, I believe you're um, on that. Um, but that's the that, language. Yeah, um, I, I quoted the language. Yes, there. yes, yes. That's not distinguishable. Yes, yes. But uh, that the court in Abbott did say that the facts, that its holding was limited to the facts of the policy before us, or the facts before us, I think, was the quote that the court used. It also described the situation as a, a quote, very unusual First Amendment challenge. And the reason for that is a, a student was asked permission beforehand to hold a, an event. The, the university said, by all means. Yes. After people complained, the, the university said, well, we weren't physically at the event, so we don't know if it happened as approved. And so they, they asked for a single meeting to clarify the facts, and they uh, even emphasized that they were not investigating uh, the student. They were in a pre-investigation stage. Here you have an entire apparatus that is affirmatively designed to, quote, eliminate bias speech. Uh, the university describes it uh, as reprehensible. They, they describe well, bias speech as, as, as reprehensible. Well, that's one way of looking at it. I suppose another way of looking at it is that the policy is in place to mediate disputes among students. Is it your position that the universities and administrators have no role in mediating disputes among students? Well, certainly the universities have to, to be able to you know, resolve disputes, but for example, can't be the case that you're trying to facilitate a conversation if you're soliciting anonymous reports. There's no one to have a, a conversation. There's nothing to mediate if someone's reporting you anonymously for uh, you know, having an unpopular opinion about uh, whether it's immigration or um, gender identity issues or, or any of the like. And the university has even referred uh, a student to student conduct from the BRT for an unpopular position about immigration, which is exactly... And what happened then? Uh, they ended up not charging, but... No one's ever been charged, right? Well, the, the disciplinary records are... Well, uh, there's you know, nothing in this confidential, record... But there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing before us, and, and part of that is because um, you know, those, those records would be uh, confidential under FERPA. Well, we know two be, people have been referred and nothing happened. Based on the university's... Representations, yes, Your Honor. Well, are you suggesting that the university has lied to you? No, no, no. I, I, no, okay. I, that, that was that's not at all what I'm, I'm okay. trying to say. I'm just trying to say there's nothing in the, in the record before us, um, and that we learned about those two things from the university's brief. Um, but you know, as the court held in, in Cartwright in the 11th Circuit, um, which I, I might add was a case where um, the university and the district court described that policy uh, as uh, precisely the same, I think was the term that they used, as the BIRT after the district court, in that case, uh, held that speech first last, lacked standing. And, and we would agree that those policies are basically carbon copies of one another. And what the 11th Circuit held in Cartwright uh, was uh, after uh, reviewing the Supreme Court's decision in Bantam Books and uh, Akwedi and, and uh, other cases, that Universities can chill speech without directly prohibiting anything. And, and that's, that's the situation where we are here. And even in the Seventh Circuit, Judge Brennan's concurrence emphasized that 
process is punishment is, is not a platitude. Um, and the other, you know, Colleen and Schlissel also held the same. All right. Thank you. Thank you, sir. You have some um, rebuttal time. Thank you, Your Honor. And we will now hear from uh, Mr. Hurd. Mr. Hurd, I'm going to ask you to speak up, too, because I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Yes, Your Honor. May it, may it please the court, let me touch briefly on one of the errors that opposing counsel has made in his opening remarks. Mr. Hurd, before, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but before we get to that, um, there's a motion pending to dismiss this action entirely based on developments of, of record and, and their competing affidavits. Um, and I, could you talk briefly about that? Because I, it seems to me that the bottom line here, that there still at least remains one student who is uh, not yet graduated. And although you, you surmise that he or she may well be gone by the end of December, we really have no way of knowing that. So why doesn't that really end the, the, uh, the, st the prudential standing inquiry? Well, you know, we, we do have a way of, of knowing that this student is, is likely to graduate in December. Uh, they have said that to this court in a sworn affidavit. Uh, therefore, it is most likely that by the time this court finishes its work on this case, that student will be gone. You underestimate the efficiency yeah, of the court. Yeah, we're Speedy Gonzalez up here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in any event, Your Honor, if, if the court decides to proceed to the merits, Virginia Tech should prevail. In their reply brief, and again this morning, they misquote the record. They say Virginia Tech's stated purpose is to eliminate biased speech. And in their brief, they point to JA369. But that's not what JA369 says. It talks about eliminating acts of bias, not speech. And on the same page, it says this, quote, effective and appropriate response. How can this not uh, uh, be said? To, it doesn't, it's not just a conduct regulation. It talks about um, if, if there's bias, somebody can be reported. For uh, bias speech. Your Honor, let me, no, let me... Excuse me, Mr. Hurd. There's no limitation on when saying you can't just... Um, you can't report someone for just pure speech. Well, and then the policy 5215 talks specifically about the distribution of literature and um, informational activities. Now, that is speech. It's pure speech. Uh, Your, Your Honor, let me, let me address those separately. First, with respect to informational activity, the policy says nothing about giving any discretion to Virginia Tech officials to make any kind of content-based decision. The evidence shows they do not make any content-based decisions. But where in the policy does it draw a line between conduct and speech. Uh, Your Honor, the, the, the policies are very different. There's the bias response policy and there's information activities policy, the leafleting policy, if you will. Now, this morning, opposing counsel has tried to introduce a new argument saying there is a difference in how we treat handing out political flyers where versus handing out advertisement. There's no difference. Where uh, is that in the policy? Well, Your Honor, the, the policy for advertising, and I take him to mean like advertising pizza or something, that is not part 
of the informational activities policy that they are challenging in this case. That is found uh, on, in a different part of the policy, JA228, uh, that deals with advertising. Well, so I the don't, court ought to disregard Mr. that Hurd, argument. Mr. Hurd, I don't see anything in the policy that rules speech off balance. And, I, and the, the whole difficulty, and it's really fundamental here, is that you've got a university which is supposed to be um, a place of dialogue for the students who attend it, and it's all channeled into a pre-approval process for the um, uh, to the state. In other yep. words, you've got to get the state's uh, permission before you can engage in First Amendment activity. You know that is not correct. That, that, is, that is inconsistent with the record. You have to get permission to reserve a place to pass out leaflets. Right, but let me... Let but me not say, to speak, not to speak. Me, yes, excuse me, Mr. Hurd, you keep interrupting me. Excuse me, I apologize, um, Your Honor. This permission, you're, you, this, this language is so vague, and you're saying, well, trust us. Trust us, we're going we're gonna to do it fine. Well, I don't, we're, we're told by the Supreme Court that we're not to just turn over the First Amendment to a, um, a sort of a trusting process. And the difficulty here is that you've got a policy where there's an unnamed official um, operating under um, vague and, un, um, and indefinite uh, policy. Your Honor, if I may, let me focus on the, the, the BERT issue, the bias response issue. Excuse me. I th there are two policies at yes. issue here. And I think it would be helpful for me, anyway, if you could tell me what policy you are addressing. Right. So uh, at I, One at a time. <laughs> let me address first the, the bias response policy. Okay. This court has said on multiple occasions that in order to have standing, you have to have a credible threat of enforcement. Now, there is no credible threat of enforcement here because our bias policy does not prohibit anything. Our bias policy team cannot discipline anyone. That's what Judge Urbanski found, and they have not challenged that. What they have said instead, oh, well, Burt can refer a case to law enforcement or the student conduct office, and Excuse that... Excuse me. Can't anyone do that? Certainly. Certainly they can. So that, uh, that would mean if that gives you standing, you have standing against the world, I guess. Uh, well, it, I think that's probably true, Your Honor, but here's the key point. In order to have a threat of enforcement, you first have to have a rule to enforce. And we have no rules that prohibit protected speech. And the power to refer cannot chill speech here because there is no basis to refer protected speech here. Think, uh, Mr. Hurd, do you think that there needs to be a power to enforce in order to satisfy, uh, to, 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 to uh, support a First Amendment violation simply for chilling speech? Well, this court has found that in order to have chilling, you have to have a credible threat of enforcement. The court has said that in Abbott and in some other cases. So it's not that chilling is a freestanding thing. We look at it and do some kind of psychological analysis. That's what they may have done in the Schlissel case in Sixth Circuit. But that's wrong. 
You have to have a credible threat of enforcement. There is no credible threat here because there are no rules to violate for protected speech. A merits, is that a merits determination or a standing determination? Because we're here on standing, right? Uh, it is a standing determination. Uh, in Abbott, this court yeah, Abbott, said... Abbott wasn't a standing case. It was a adjudication on the merits. But the court also said a credible threat of enforcement is critical. Without one, a punitive plaintiff can establish neither a realistic threat of legal sanction if he engages in speech in question, nor an objectively good reason for, for refraining from speaking and self-censoring instead. That was a, a comment about standing in the context of, of Abbott, and the court has said it in other cases as well. Now, they realize there are no rules that, that prohibit protected speech. They realize, whether they admit it or not, that Burke can only refer to law enforcement or student conduct if there's a violation of a rule or a law. They, they mentioned two mistakes that were made. And how Judge Mott's... Mr. Hurd, how can this possibly not have a chilling effect when something you say, something you say can give rise to an anonymous report and an anonymous accusation to this, to this um, committee and then you're going to get a letter from the dean of students or somebody in the dean of students' office calling you on the carpet and saying, explain yourself. Probably and not. How, excuse me, how can that not be a chilling effect? You have to consider it from the standpoint of students who know if they speak out on a controversial subject, be it transition uh, transgender issues or Black Lives Matter issues or illegal immigration issues, they're going to be called, they're going to be reported by somebody. They're going to be reported anonymously. And you're going to receive an invitation, of, or invitation is too mild a word, you're going to receive a letter from the, from the dean of students saying, come before this committee and explain yourself. And then further... There is going to be a report in the dean's files to be referred as, as needed to a student council or to some disciplinary body. And this seems to me, if this isn't a chilling, this whole apparatus, if this whole apparatus doesn't exert a chilling effect, I'm hard-pressed to know what does. Uh, Your Honor, with due respect, the, the record is, is much different than that. There are very, it is very rarely, very rarely, does the dean uh, invite someone to come to a meeting, and those meetings are voluntary. Now, they say, well, nobody would regard the meeting as voluntary, but let's look at what happened in the, in the, in the, in the Killing case, the Seventh Circuit. That court found that when students were invited to a meeting by the Illinois Vice Response Team, a majority either did not respond or declined to meet. That's at 968 Fed 3rd 633. So the average student does not regard these meetings as mandatory. And if a, in Abbott, if a mandatory meeting that was going to talk about, well, did you violate some policy, if that mandatory meeting is not unduly chilling, then neither is a voluntary meeting where there cannot be a referral unless there is a reason to believe you violated the law or some, some rule. They've not pointed to any rule prohibiting speech in this whole thing. Now, let me give you an example, Your Honor. Burden. It's your burden to show that it, it's not their burden to show a rule prohibiting speech. It's your burden 
to show that you have a, a, a very emphatic policy permitting speech. Your Honor, we have such a rule. It appears on the first page, it appears on the first page of our brief, that we view every complaint through the lens of the First Amendment. Offensive the speech or not. But where's the policy? The policy is there, Your Honor. It's cited in the first page of our brief. That is the policy. We view every complaint through the lens of the First Amendment. That's why so few <laughs> ever, ever wind up resulting in an invitation. Let me give you, Your Honor, an That's example. Just, you know, that is simply a, a, a plea from a, a, a state bureaucracy to say, trust us, we're going to do, do well. But the point is, the plain language of the policy is, um, is what governs here. Let me give you a child evangelism case. They make that clear. You know, this is not what, what this whole thing and what your argument is saying is that we're going to be good. We're going to be good. Good people. We're going to administer this in a in a fair-minded way and everything. But when I look at the combination of a prior restraint coupled with the vague language and the bureaucratic discretion that is a, is, resides. In the administration of it, it's it's a combination of a lot of different First Amendment red flags. Your Honor, if I may, the, the child evangelism case they have cited not in the context of the bias response policy, but in the context of the informational activities policy, they pointed out that in child evangelism, the policy of that school board was unconstitutional because they would review in advance your flyer to see if it could proceed or not. We don't review anyone's leaflet. And this is the informational activities policy again. We don't review leaflets in advance to see if we like them or not. It is a first-come, first-served approach, a reservation system only. That's what the judge found. Uh, judge Obransky found. Before, now, if I could just ask you this question. It is like child evangelism to the extent that um, somebody who wants to distribute these must come to you, you ruling body and get approval before they so it's a prior restraint of some sort isn't it well so in child evangelism the the, the school itself was doing the distribution I'm, I'm very familiar uh, with child evangelism. <laughs> yes you are I understand um, uh, so is it is it a prior restraint to reserve a table in advance well yes it is but a prior restraint is lawful if it is a reasonable time place and manner requirement and this one is to say, look, we got 800 organizations. We got 38,000 people. We're trying to figure out how to administer this thing in a reasonable way. And so, yes, you come in and say, "Hey, I want like to have a table at the end of the drill field next Tuesday." You know, you can make you can make a reasonable policy out of um, you, you say, "Oh, there's so much congestion and this and that." You can make a reasonable policy out of time, place, and manner restrictions, which says you can't distribute literature in the hallways. You can't distribute um, literature at the doorway to the hallway. So there are plenty of ways in which you can administer this. You know, that's correct. This policy. And what bothers me is I think back to the founding of this country and the importance that leafleting and, and petitions which are explicitly protected in the Constitution. Did the founders of this country and the people that wrote our Constitution envision a system where people 
had to get pre-approval from the state before they could say anything controversial. Oh, it is just... And that is not our policy. Mr. Hurd, please. This is fundamentally at, at odds with the principles that this country would produce, which was uh, that, that uh, prior approval uh, for speech subject to loose discretionary standards administered by unnamed bureaucrats subject to anonymous reporting of one student or another is this supposed to be is this what a university is supposed to stand for is this i i don't get it well you know if i if i may uh, obviously if the state of virginia required prior approval of the content of leaflets before passing them out that would be unconstitutional uh, if you said you can't pass out leaflets on the street of Richmond without prior approval, that would be unconstitutional because that is a traditional public forum. The university is not a traditional public forum. Now, there may be other ways to have a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction on passing out leaflets. And if you or I were on the board... It's a traditional we, public forum in the sense of a sidewalk or a street or a park. I grant you. But it is a public forum for the students who are part of the, uh, the, the intellectual life at the university, which one would hope would nourish them. And it, it is a designated public forum for not just the public at large, but for the students. And the Supreme Court has repeatedly said that the university for the students themselves is supposed to be a place where speech, values, and dialogue are honored and, and, and not chilled and subject to, to pre-approval by university authority. Well, Your Honor, again, we, we, that is not what this record is. We do not look at flyers in advance to approve their content. Uh, the policy does not give us that authority. And if you thought the policy was ambiguous on that question, then you should defer to practice, and you should defer to the presumption that officials will discharge their duties correctly. Let me give you an example, Your Honor, of, of something that would merit what, an what invitation. About the, what about the solo speaker? You have to be a member of a student organization in order to get, to, to get a pre-approval. Now, suppose a single individual <clears throat> wants to leaflet at a crosswalk. Do you, is it, you know, Justice Kennedy made the specific point that the First Amendment is not meant simply for people who combine in groups under an RSO. It's meant for the single person who, who may um, have an unpopular point of view, but that person is entitled to be protected in a, in a, in a, in leafleting or whatever at a crosswalk. You don't have to have everything go well, you a pre-approved table. Your Honor, the, the Martinez case would dictate a different result. But let me, let me, if I may, give you an example of something that would merit an invitation to come to a meeting. In this court's decision in the Aouda Zai case, 1993, the court dealt with a college fraternity that held an ugly woman contest with one guy dressed in blackface. The court said that was protected speech. And if that happened at Virginia Tech, we would treat it as protected speech. 
but we would probably want someone, perhaps the Office of Greek Affairs, to invite those students to come in for a conversation about why that speech is wrong. But according to speech first, we could not even make that invitation. Even the possibility of making that invitation would violate the Constitution in their view. And that cannot be right. We are an educational institution, and we would not be doing our job if we did not try to show these students why that kind of speech was a problem. And that is part of our Thank you, Mr. Hurd. I'm going to ask each of my co-panelists if they have any questions, in which case we'll give you some extra time. Thank you, Honor. We have no further questions. Thank you. Thank you, Honor. We ask the judgment below be affirmed. Mr. Hassan, you had some rebuttal time. Thank you very much, Your Honor. I'd like to briefly address a few points about the BIRT and then a few points about the informational activities policy. One, um, my, my friend over here has emphasized that uh, they don't formally punish students from the BIRT, but never addressed the case law um, in the Second Circuit and the Supreme Court that we cited in our brief, uh, showing that formal prohibitions are not required to chill speech. And that's exactly what the bias response team does. So, Mr. The, Hassan, do you think that our, our Abbott decision, that, that that was wrongly decided? Because that seemed to suggest support Mr. Hurd's position that there has to be a credible threat of enforcement. I think Abbott uh, is distinguishable, Your Honor, for the reasons that uh, I expressed during my opening. Well, you, and I think you, you certainly did distinguish it, but I don't know that you distinguish it in a way that really makes a difference to this case. But I think the difference between the two is uh, in Abbott, it was the normal disciplinary process, and they had it basically, it was a fact finding uh, single meeting, pre investigatory meeting. Whereas here, um, if a student says something about you know, anything remotely controversial, including in class, um, the they could be brought in for a meeting that includes the, the Director of Student Conduct. And as the, the 11th Circuit pointed out in, in Cartwright, um, and that's uh, 32 F4th at 1124 Note 5, uh, the average student uh, would no more think that that kind of invitation was, was voluntary um, than a, a, a teenager would if uh, their parent said, uh, please clean your room, or can you please clean your room? That was the, uh, the exact example that the 11th Circuit used uh, in, in, that, um, uh, in that case. And third, I, I would emphasize that um, if we just changed the actor from the university to the city, and the type of speech from uh, you know, biased speech to uh, you know, patriotic speech, no one would think that the city of Blacksburg could have a patriotism response team where they summon people in for meetings for saying uh, anti-American speech. And if they couldn't do that in the, in the city, they certainly can't do it. Uh, but you, you assume that you have to go to the meeting. As I read the record, you weren't required to come to the meeting. That's why this whole policy is interesting, but it doesn't seem to have much bite to it, and you're all about worrying about 
potential bite. Chilling, right? And if it doesn't have any bite, how can there be chilling? Well, am I right that you don't have to come to the meeting? That, that is, the, the, the meeting is technically voluntary, Your Honor, but I don't. <laughs> well, do we have anything in the record that says it wasn't voluntary in some situation? I mean, technically, we've given it a little bit of a pejorative spin there. Um, the meeting is voluntary, right? Yes. Yes, Your Honor. But if you place yourself in the shoes of an 18 or 19-year-old student at a university and you get a letter from the dean of students asking you to meet about your speech, I, I imagine most 18 or 19-year-olds who are you know, freshmen at a university would feel pretty obligated to go. And uh, it, in Schlissel, the sixth... Said, would you like you to come to a voluntary meeting about your speech? I, I, you have dealt with more uh, docile 18 and 19-year-olds than I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, Your Honor, uh, I think the Sixth Circuit in Schlissel pointed out that the referral power that the, the, the bias response team had but there... That, but I asked you about that earlier, too. I didn't think the referral power was any more than any other citizen could have, you can re or any other member of the community. Well, certainly anybody can report misconduct, but it's, it's a different when you're dealing with state at, you know, summoning you for your speech and referring you versus a, a peer. The, the power dynamic is, is widely different. Um, I, I see that my time is running out, so very quickly just to touch on the, the informational activities policy. Uh, the university emphasizes that they have disclaimers about, you know, protecting uh, students' First Amendment rights, but the Supreme Court said in U.S. v. Stevens that Citizens are not required to rely on the, the noblesse oblige uh, of the government to not restrict First Amendment activity when a policy facially does so. And um, lastly, I would just point out that um, you know, Child Evangelism Center, I believe the court actually held that forum analysis is irrelevant. I, I, have, a, I have a question, sorry, uh, before you sit down. So um, in the 11th Circuit case, um, the court although it granted, uh, it reversed on the standing issue, it, it remanded to the district court to consider the merits of the, of the policy in the first instance. So, uh, and I know you say that in this case it should be clear to us that, the, that you should win, but you don't, you're not arguing that, that simply because you, you would have made a showing on standing that that necessarily ends the inquiry, right? I mean, it, we could grant, we could agree with you with respect to the standing question and send it back to the district court and the court could rule against you and uh, find that, at least on the merits, it simply isn't a substantial enough chill to warrant a First Amendment violation. Is that right? There are definitely two different inquiries, Your Honor. That's, that's, that's correct. We think. Isn't your standing argument tied to the whole chill? There is. If we find that there's insufficient evidence of chill, you have no standing. There is a substantial degree of overlap, Your Honor, yes, between objective chill. If the court finds that this policy objectively chills speech as a matter of law, then because it clearly facially applies to protected speech, uh, our position is that there's simply no way that it could be held up on the merits, which is why the university doesn't really focus on it. So I'm sorry, you, you answered the backwards of that, but that's fine. <laughs> um, it, so if we should find that there is enough chill to get you standing, you win. Is what you well, that's, that's essentially. Uh, and there are if two you separate find there words, isn't enough chill to get you standing, you lose. Essentially, Your Honor. Yeah. Okay. 
<clears throat> if your honors have nothing further. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. All right. We uh, appreciate very much counsel's argument in this case. We will uh, move directly into our, our second case.